Welcome to a cool Tuesday home time with Jan Bartlett. Welcome to a much cooler Tuesday home time. Winter not far away and that means Radiothon in less than a month. So please keep that in mind to help the station stay right where it is for another year. It's Jan Bartlett, so let's move on to the program. Palestinians fighting back against another land grab by Israeli settlers who are being protected by the the IDF, Raywan Araf, who will be speaking, and she is the Director and Principal Lawyer with the Australian Centre for International Justice. Bishop George Browning with a message for Scott Morrison. Tamil Genocide Day next Sunday, your chance to attend a rally and learn about the ongoing persecution of not only Tamils in Sri Lanka, but also the small Muslim population. Progress on the nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff. News from Western Sahara with Dr Randy Irwin, who's the editor of the Western Saharan e-bulletin. And is there a Les Majesty law in Malaysia? And where will Linus go now? It's planned for a permanent radioactive waste dump has been rejected. And I'll be speaking with environmentalist Lee Tan. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when the pot calling the kettle award to Admiral Michael Rogers, a U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, former National Security Agency director, who said misinformation is one of the greatest threats to democratic governments. Let's say that again. A U.S. of trained killer former director of a security agency, says misinformation is one of the greatest threats to democratic government. The US of, do they ever listen to themselves? I'm sure the people of Chile circa 1973 would find that interesting, as would governments undermined around the globe, people saved by send in the marines around the world. But the good admiral says Russia, evil Russia, is the best there is, at misinformation and disinformation. It's a wonder poor innocent US of knows that such underhand methods exist. Let's just say it one more time. The US of says misinformation is the greatest threat to democracy. Train killer Roger, your pot coin the kettle award is on its way. The bury your head in the sand bracket somebody else's award to sand toss it over there for this brilliant idea for lowering its carbon footprint on gas projects in northern True Blue Aussie. Scuttle them and Fossils Minister Angus Tailing's favourite technological solution to climate change, if there is such a thing, carbon capture and storage, CCS, bury your head in the sand. Okay, okay, so far no one's been able to make it actually work, but let's not let that minor fact get between a bit of CO2 and a bag of profit. The brilliance of Santos and over there's idea is to bury the CO2. As I said, let's forget the fact that no one has yet got it to work. The CO2, 10 million tonnes of it a year, true figure, out in the ocean in the near-depleted Bayan Undu field. Possibly the best CO2, uh, CCS reservoir in True Blue Aussie. The company looked very pleased with itself. Uh, in True Blue Aussie, we looked a bit bewildered. Well, more than usual bewildered. Yes, yes, the best in True Blue Aussie. Uh, but, but the Bayan Undu field is in uh, Timor-Leste. 
Uh, well, yes, technically uh, it is. It, it is uh, in Timor Leste, uh, technically, but but this would be a great boon to Timor Leste's economy. But what if they don't agree? How can they not agree? Are you saying they are not a good neighbour to Trublawazi? Isn't it considerate that a giant world resource corporation is prepared to assist a small nation by sending it its rubbish? What an inspired, altruistic idea. And just to help, Scumro Angus and the team plan to provide 265 mil in the budget for the development of burying your head in the sand. Much more sensible than wasting 265 mil on a solution that does not emit CO2 at all. But what if Timor-Leste proves uncooperative? We certainly hope it doesn't, that it recognises the huge benefits of copying True Blue Aussie's rubbish. But what if? Where's our former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, when we need him? He, he can show us how to plant a bug or two in the Timor-Leste cabinet room and give Santos and over there a bit of an advantage. About 500k southeast of the site of this oh-so-generous opportunity for Timor-Leste, thanks to the goodness of Santos over there, over there at Trublawazi, lies a serious threat to Trublawazi's security, or we presume so, as Scuttle them and his Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, warn us of the dangers of an evil, evil Chinese company which has leased the port of Darwin. So threatening, scuttle them and Peter prepared to spend millions of our hard-earned to tear up the lease. Uh, so this poses a serious threat to Tuvalu Aussie security, scuttle them. Uh, no, well, well, not directly, but it poses a serious threat to our very, very, very close friend, the US of, and the Marines, and, and fleet of train-killer destroyers and other train-killing state-of-the-art weaponry it has there, to protect Trublawazi from any threat, uh, like China. This is not about China. It is about protecting the US of whose generosity in providing Marines and all that protection we so cherish. Uh, does the US of trained killing weaponry happen to include nuclear-powered vessels, for instance? We, we ask Constable Duffer. Like, you know, I can't, you know, like, comment on that, like, you know, for, like, security, you know, reasons. Or you have no idea? Huh? Oh, oh, never mind. The real concern, of course, is that while Japan bombed Darwin 80 or so years ago, unless we tear up this untrublawazi lease, if it comes to supporting the US of liberating China from China, we'll be forced to bomb Darwin ourselves. As COVID ravages India, Scuttle Them and Co. said they were concerned about the thousands of trublawazi stranded there, all desperate to get back. We are very concerned, Scuttle Them looked very concerned, that they might try to get back. Uh, so what are you doing for them? We are doing the only thing we can do, lock them up for life and find them trillions if they break through our barriers, break the law. Is that part of the love the dear baby Jesus faith that drives your every move, your no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people policy, for instance, that adopts the dear baby Jesus as our de facto big supremo? Absolutely. It is based on my love thy neighbor belief. Making that cricket commentator's accusations even more outlandish, how could anyone suggest Scuttle Them has blood on his hands? Why, look... He's gone straight to that basin and washed them, showing he's a dedicated student of the Bible. 
on that commentator, I have had a divine revelation that uh, he is that jail and a million dollar fine are too good for him, that we should make an exception to our opposition to capital punishment. A lethal injection of COVID should do the trick. Just a week after a glossy magazine article so praised New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berry lots of them for putting the economy first during a little bit of COVID, declaring she saved the country, which is synonymous with the economy, by inference reflecting on the selfishness and untrue blue Aussieism of our state socialist government, for instance, putting community health ahead of the bottom line of those who really matter, the caring business class, Gladys again came out and said other states might have closed up after a new case or two, but not good, good, saving the country, Gladys. If Victoria had been so patriotic last year, sure, we'd still have lots of cases and lots of deaths, but the dying would know they were making a contribution to what really matters. And the sensible policy would have helped the unemployment rate, helped big economic guru Josh Fry of Iceberg's crusade to ensure workers obtain good, highly paid jobs. Well, the workers who survived the COVID policy, as the dead could be replaced by the unemployed, who in turn would, see, shortly the unemployment rate would be slashed, showing how the pejorative Dan and the state socialist lot have no concern whatever for the unemployed. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin ran an article by Warren Mundunamin describing him as Indigenous leader, highlighting his claim that the proposed new curriculum, placing lots more emphasis on Aboriginal history, would create a society where people are divided by the colour of their skin. I don't know what to say. We're having, let's repeat that again, day. Let's repeat that again. An arch-conservative indigenous leader says teaching kids about Aboriginal history would create a society where people are divided by the colour of their skin. Gee, wouldn't we notice the difference? True Blue Aussie people divided by the colour of their skin. I'll run a survey of the Indigenous presenters on this station here and see how many view Warren as an Indigenous leader. Are there enough coconut trees to accommodate their answers? Then again, a bloke called Anthony Roberts, a senior member of Gladys's cabinet in New South Wales, described the new curriculum as neo-Marxist rubbish, so it can't be too bad. Other than too bad for Warren and Anthony. As Woolworth Trillions read the tea leaves or the wine dregs and withdrew a proposal for a wine bar in Darwin, although it has hedged its bets a bit, if we're not mixing metaphors, or even if we are, it turned out to be a disastrous decision. And if you don't believe me, just read that fine example of exemplary journalism, the Northern Territory Times front page screaming headline, Dan Shame. The Chamber of Prophets is mourning the lost new jobs that would have been created. How selfish of those opponents. Josh helped out again by jobs in cleaning up the mess. Still up north, the northern Trublawazi infrastructure facility has for the first time had a federal minister step in and veto a proposed loan as the minister for beautiful coal, Keith Pitpony, vetoed a loan for a Queensland wind farm, announcing wind and solar should be funded by the private sector and not the taxpayer. Financial assistance would be inconsistent with the objectives and policies of the government. 
no comment needed here, I think, but Keith did show his awareness and compassion by pointing out taxpayers were already paying in other ways thanks to those objectives and policies. Interesting, right next to that article in Friday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, the more the um, the government will announce a 58.6 million package in the budget to help drive the gas-led recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. Wonder if the sub-editor juxtaposed them deliberately. And finally, as the fossils and the caring business class generally lobby to convince a government that doesn't need any convincing of the importance of trillions in corporate welfare in the budget, Scubbo announced the future of the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, is at stake unless costs are reined in. Little reigning ins like withdrawing services. Apparently, Scubber had another humane, caring, love thy neighbour revelation from the dear baby Jesus. Oh, and our invitation to the budget lockup, where we should be right now, didn't arrive. Obviously, an oversight. Good afternoon. And more Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at nine o'clock with City Limits. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Thursday, the 20th of May, Wyndham Humanitarian Network is holding a free Bring Your Bills Day in Wyndham Vale. Members of the community who have had questions about bills or debts can attend the event to speak to lawyers, financial counsellors, ombudsman schemes and other community organisations. The event will run from 11.30am to 7.30pm on Thursday, the 20th of May at the Warangal Darung Centre at 19 Communal Road, Wyndham Vale. Wyndham Vale Humanitarian Network is a 3CR supporter. It's not the first time Israel has been accused of apartheid and persecution against Palestinians, but this time it's Human Rights Watch, which investigates reports on human rights abuses in all corners of the world. Both apartheid and persecution are listed as crimes against humanity under international law. 
and the Human Rights Organisation is calling on countries, including Australia, to impose sanctions on Israel. As expected, the Israeli government and its supporters have condemned the 2013-page report by Human Rights Watch titled A Threshold Crossed, Israeli Authorities and Crimes of Apartheid. And we're also looking at the prospects of an Israeli-Australia free trade agreement. Yesterday I spoke with Rowan Araf, Principal Lawyer and Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. But before we talked about those two areas I've just mentioned, I pointed out that what is happening in East Jerusalem at the moment is significant for all of what we're going to talk about later. Thanks for having me, Jan, on your program. I think I'm speaking to you in the context of really brutal settler colonial violence that we're witnessing now in East Jerusalem, cracked down by Israeli authorities on the protest rights of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. And it's really as a result of a number of factors, but primarily the imminent forced eviction of eight Palestinian refugee families residing in the East Jerusalem neighborhood known as Sheikh Jarrah. And they're at risk, as I said, of imminent forced eviction due to a legal challenge that's being brought by an extremist right-wing settler organization inside Israel under the, obviously, the cover of the Israeli state and Israel's discriminatory laws. In fact, these evictions are based on the application of two uh, Israeli laws, including the absentee property law. And we must understand that uh, these uh, are actually, these, these imminent forced evictions are actually a violation, a fundamental breach of international humanitarian law, where Israel is the occupier confiscating or appropriating property in occupied territory. It's also a prohibition on Israel transfer of its own civilian population into occupied territory. But we know that's been happening for decades where in fact at the moment what we, where we have now is at least 620,000 Jewish Israelis living as illegal settlers in Israel's colonial settlements across the West Bank. The families um, in Sheikh Jarrah have called on people around the world to support them, to stand in solidarity with them against these forced evictions, which amount to uh, war crimes under international law. And as you know, Jan, I've spoken to you before about the International Criminal Court at the moment, the Office of the Prosecutor is investigating uh, international crimes, whether war crimes or crimes against humanity being committed in Palestine. Legal groups, including victims, um, advocates, representatives of the families in Sheikh have written to the Office of the Prosecutor to request that she investigate these crimes but also to call on the international community to act and stop Israel from its imminent forced evictions of the families in Sheikh Jarrah. So that's the violence, that's the, the, what you're seeing at the moment in um, East Jerusalem and the protests um, which are supporting the families and are being uh, violently repressed and suppressed by the Israeli state. This brings us on to the Human Rights <coughs> Watch report. They're alleging apartheid and persecution of Palestinians. Can you just first explain the significance of Human Rights Watch compared to other human rights groups and have other international human rights groups gone as far as Human Rights Watch have in this report? 
I think that's a really great question, Jan, and it's a really landmark report, um, and that's how Human Rights Watch is being, their report is being touted. Of course, they're not the first organization to state that Israel is practicing the crime against humanity of apartheid. Palestinians have been talking about their lived experience of apartheid for decades. And of course, we saw earlier this year, Israeli human rights organization, Betzalem, also um, conducted their own analysis finding that Israel is also committing the crime against humanity of apartheid. But the significance here is that it's an international human rights organization, Human Rights Watch, which is very respected around the world and is used by governments in their analysis on human rights situations all around the world. So this is quite significant for that reason. And what Human Rights Watch found was that Israeli authorities were committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution um, in the occupied Palestinian territory. That's the significance here and what they're calling to say, call it what it is, to call a spade a spade, that Palestinians, millions of Palestinians are being deprived of their fundamental and Israel is privileging one group of people at the expense of another. You know, this is a long study. I understand Human Rights Watch has been conducting this study for, for two years. Um, based on years of research, they've been operating in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory for over three decades. And this is why it's so significant. And as I said before, of course, Palestinians, academics, human rights organizations, and individuals have been analyzing and talking about their lived experience of apartheid under um, Israel's apartheid regime for many decades now. So this is, I think, a significant and welcome contribution by an international human rights organization. That's notwithstanding, of course, that there is some criticism of Human Rights Watch. But I think, of course, you know, this is a broader international movement. We are seeing a, a momentum, I think, in terms of um, respect and solidarity with Palestinian human rights in the last two decades. And I think we should welcome this report, as our Palestinian human rights organizations indeed have. So I think it's about time that uh, the international community actually recognizes that the situation that we're finding ourselves in now it amounts to the crimes against humanity of, of apartheid and persecution. Yeah, so I'll leave it there in case you have other questions on that front. As you said, other international groups and local groups have talked mm. about these issues as well. It's a 213-page report. Does it say anything mm. new or is it more repeating what the other groups have already said? I think there's, you know, various distinctions in this analysis. It's a strictly, you can say, a legal analysis that applies the legal standard according to the definition of crime against humanity in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Of course, that established the ICC, the Crime Against Humanity of Apartheid. Of course, uh, as we know, apartheid is associated with the regime in South Africa, and it was coined in South Africa. But it was defined as a crime against humanity by the international community in two subsequent treaties. I said, of course, the Rome Statute, was, which was in 1998, but it was also defined in a 1973 Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid. You know, Human Rights Watch in their report analyzed subsequent um, significant number of texts, policy statements, uh, agreements, laws by Israeli authorities that they say established their finding of the crime against humanity of apartheid. 
So I think in that regard, it brings a different kind of perspective. And I think there's a distinction, of course, between the different um, groups in terms of how they came to that definition. But I would say that the Human Rights Watch analysis does stand on its own. I think it's important to mention here, uh, Jan, that a different element to a purely legal analysis. And uh, Palestinian academics have also talked about this, that you know this isn't a purely international criminal legal kind of analysis that you have to bring the political element into here and that, you know, international criminal law may not be the only avenue to finally seek justice and accountability or liberation for Palestinian people. So that, you know, this is just one aspect. So I think there's a lot of different moving parts to a broader international movement to seek justice and accountability for all people in Israel and Palestine. Um, and that's uh, you know, international criminal law is just one of them. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's important to recognize that there are different views and perspectives, but that doesn't diminish the Human Rights Watch report per se. I don't think, I think, as I said before, it's a really important piece of advocacy tool for the Palestinian human rights uh, movement and anti-apartheid movement as well. What do you believe this report means for the Australian government, which has been described by many people as the closest Australian government to Israel for many, many years. I would agree with that description. Um, And we haven't heard any responses from the Australian government to the report. We know that the State Department responded to the report. But we would say that the Australian government must undertake and, and respect and review the report and the findings and really find a way to challenge the long-standing discourse and approach to Israel and Palestine, which has completely failed everybody in the region. And this is why Human Rights Watch talks about the need for a complete paradigm shift that is really rooted in the respect for human rights, the respect for protection for human rights and accountability. And I think, um, you know, the Australian government has been complicit in Israel's crimes, in Israel's crime against humanity of apartheid, in Israel's occupation. And we know that because at the moment they're carrying out a study into whether or not Australia should strengthen its trade with the state of Israel and whether or not it should introduce or enter into a free trade agreement with with Israel. And of course, if it was to look at the report, for example, of Human Rights Watch, it needs to really rethink about whether that's a priority for the Australian government. And we would say it's not. We would say In retrospect, what Australia needs to do is urgently undertake a significant review, a comprehensive review of all of its agreements and engagement and bilateral trade agreements with Israel and seriously think about the need to undertake effective measures such as targeted sanctions measures, such as banning the importation of settlement goods into the Australian market. Um, and a comprehensive arms embargo, for example, the end of Australia's defence uh, and security cooperation with Israeli arms, with the State of Israel and, def- and you know, facilitating rather uh, defence industry cooperation. Because, uh, you know, this is a responsibility of, of Australia under international law. Australia has an obligation as a third state not to accept an illegal situation such as we're seeing now in Palestine. And we would encourage the Australian government to really undertake a comprehensive review of all of its engagement with Israel and ensure that 
in none of that cooperation, it is complicit in the commission of international crimes, such as apartheid and other war crimes. Well, that's the Australian government's connection to Israel, but what about the United States and their response to this report? So I think the State Department has basically just said that they do not agree that the present situation announced to apartheid, but I think that, you know, that's probably a sign of constructive engagement and possibly also a reflection of the, you know, respect and credibility that Human Rights Watch really has among governments all around the world and, and the need for the U.S. government to seriously engage with the findings of, of the report um, of Human Rights Watch and, of course, other organisations who have been saying the same thing, commit to a really fundamental paradigm shift. But I think it will take time. Um, as you know, the U.S. is one of Israel's most you know, significant supporters and is obviously very deeply embedded and, and complicit in Israel's crimes itself. And I don't think we would have seen a complete um, acceptance of the report firsthand. But I think that the report itself will become um, one of the landmark um, moments in terms of if we look back and see where we are in 10 or 15 years' time, and I remain hopeful, of course, then it will be seen as one of those landmark moments. That's not discounting, of course, the fact that Palestinians and their supporters have been at the forefront in leading this type of analysis, in documenting these crimes, and in speaking up and calling on the world to join them in the, in the struggle for justice and accountability. But unfortunately, the people in East Jerusalem don't have time. That's right. And so that's why we're also calling for effective measures. Um, Australia needs to not only condemn the situation arising out of the serious and numerous breaches of international law that Israel conducts on a daily basis, whether that's the situation in East Jerusalem, whether that's the illegal and punitive closure of the Gaza Strip, there needs to be really effective, urgent measures. And we've seen that the international community has, for decades, not done anything, and it's allowed Israel to continue to commit these crimes, create facts on the ground, and severely deprive Palestinians of their fundamental human rights. So um, I would call on people of conscience all around the world, as Palestinians have been requesting, and we're joining those calls, to support Palestinians and against occupation. Finally, we've only talked about two countries reaction to this report. What other countries mm. are speaking out? Um, I think, you know, in the past we've seen um, a few countries who have uh, accepted uh, the situation is amounting to a situation of apartheid. I think that's been South Africa and uh, Namibia as well, Pakistan and Palestine. And this was as a result of some statements that they've made at the Human Rights Council in the last several years. Um, I don't know of any other situation of rather country that's made that connection yet, but I think we will see that advance in the next couple of years. I don't know, Jan, if you remember, certainly another time that I was alive, but, you know, it's probably comparable to the situation of in a past. There are obviously very many differences, but in terms of the um, movement to end apartheid in South Africa, you know, the governments were the last to get on board, and that's why I think Palestinians realise that it's international and global solidarity from people of conscience who are able to force their governments 
to put an end to illegal situation and the severe deprivation of human rights that Palestinians currently. That's what we should be doing now? That's right, I would agree. And, and of course, we're only amplifying the calls coming from Palestinian organisations inside Palestine and obviously in the diaspora as well. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Rawan Arif, who's the Principal Lawyer and Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you listen to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Dear Scott, you have got yourself in a bit of strife from commentators. That's part of the opening paragraph of a letter by George Browning, President of Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network and former Anglican Bishop of Canberra, Goulburn, to the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. So when I rang him, I asked George to explain why he believed the Prime Minister had got himself into a bit of strife. I have no difficulty at all with um, the Prime Minister being overt about his Christian faith. and In some respects, that's a very good thing. Nor do I have any difficulty with him uh, making it clear which branch of Christianity he um, adheres to. What I wrote to him about is that I don't know that he's breached the, the matter of church and state. I'm not sure that that is a fair thing. But what I wanted to write about was the, the, the unbridgeable gap which seems to exist between what he says he believes and the action of him and his government in power. Um, I, I'm very much uh, wedded to uh, many heroes in life. One of them is Bishop Leslie Newbigin, who um, said at a conference I attended years ago when I was quite young that you don't believe anything unless it makes a difference to the way you live your life. And uh, I took, in the letter, I took uh, the Prime Minister to task over some of the claims that he made about things he's committed to, but I can't see any evidence in reality that there is that commitment. And I, if you'd like me, I'll, I'll, I can re- go through those matters if you'd like. If you would, please. Yes. He starts off by, in his talk by referring to the late Sir Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi of, of Britain and was a, actually became Lord Sachs. He died oh, a month or so ago, a very, very fine man. In Lord Sachs's writings, he often refers to the behavior of Jews and Christians, for that matter, as being necessarily 
covenantal. What he means by that is that uh, <clears throat> we are made in the image of God. God acts in a covenantal way with humanity and with creation. That's to say that creation is the, an act of God, therefore God must be committed to creation for good. And um, Jonathan Sachs says that the most important covenant is actually the one after the flood where God covenants with all living. The, the Prime Minister mentioned this and in so doing said that he was committed to covenantal relationships, not transactional relationships. And then I, in my letter to him, I pointed out that almost everything he does is transactional, not covenantal, that uh, he transacts with members of his own party uh, who have fallen foul of the pub test, if you like, for them to stay in power in, in, rather than um, upset the balance of power within his party. He transacts with uh, <clears throat> the fossil fuel industry because they are supporters of him both ideologically and financially. He transacts with um, on the floor of Parliament in terms of the way he speaks to others and doesn't actually seek good policy but transacts for political victory. So I took him to task over saying that, but actually showing no sign of it. Secondly, he spoke about honouring all people for who they are and actually condemning what he calls um, identity politics. But as I said in my letter to him, I can't see that he, that he and his government do anything other than indulge in, in identity politics. There are many examples of that, and uh, so relating to myself, because I am a have been for a long time a strong advocate for environmental responsibility, rather than dealing with the arguments put forward, I am dismissed by that side of politics as a kind of a socialist or a green supporter or, or whatever. And that's identity politics. It's actually giving me a name rather than dealing with the arguments I present. Members of his party now use the word woke, to belittle people who want to stand for social justice. For example, those, including myself, who argue that the family on Christmas Island should be um, returned to Biloela uh, and uh, into the arms of the community who obviously love them and care for them. To make that statement is called woke. Well, that's identity politics. And there are many, many other examples that one can use. He talked about the evils of social media, and I pointed out that the social media is no more but no less open to evil than any other sector of, sector of human life, that uh, everybody is capable of evil, everybody is capable of good. Christians are not um, dualists. We don't believe there is one area which is evil and another area which is good, but the potential for both is with the whole of humanity. And one of the issues with social media is that that which is wrong about it could be addressed, but his side of politics won't address it. So, um, he, as, you, as your listeners will know, the Prime Minister has supported Craig Kelly for a long time, but the um, social media itself has now shut down his um, social media accounts. It's, it's no good pointing to the wrong side of social media and having the capacity to do something about it, but then doing nothing about it. And uh, he claims that um, to do this is, what's the word I want now that's gone from me, the people are accused of um, shutting things down. Anyway, but, uh, yeah. but the reality is his side of politics 
does exactly the same thing. So, as you know, I'm as leader of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. I'm a strong supporter of Palestine, but his side of politics does everything that it can to shut down that debate. And so, if you are a supporter of Palestine, you're being called anti-Semitic. So, in summary. My letter to him is, I have no difficulty with you expressing your faith, no difficulty with you actually belonging to um, uh, a church, Australian Christians church, but I have a lot of difficulty with making a point based on faith, but there is no evidence for it in practice. Do you think that people in Australia actually care? About his faith? Mm. About his, um, his words? I, I, in, increasingly, I think people care about what I just said, the, the gap between what he says and what he does. So uh, I'm reasonably well connected with the Christian community, and people are just exasperated, for example, that the family is kept on Biloela. And uh, the, it seems so cruel, so ideologically driven... The reason for it is is no longer anything to do with the security of Australia, or uh, um, there is no there is nothing in it that actually is to do with the good of Australia and Australia's life. It has everything to do with politics and so on. And I think people are concerned that here one understands Christianity to be forgiving, loving, caring, building community, etc. But here we have an action which is totally opposed to that, and it's almost inexplicable. Now, this was a letter in Pearls and Irritations. Did you actually send it to Scott Morrison or not? No, it's written, it's, it's written in a style for... It's actually... I wrote it originally for my own blog, but um, I've ceased sending things to the Prime Minister because I never get a reply. The other issue we need to talk about, George, is the Australian government and a trade deal with Israel. Can you Correct. expand on that? Your listeners would know that um, the government, and there's nothing wrong with this, it seeks to expand its trade deals with many nations in the world. And as we know, um, there is strong negotiation going on at the present time with Britain since it left the European Common Market. With Israel, it's a different matter. And the argument that APAN is putting forward is again based on morality. That is to say, if we trade with a government that is actually known to be breaking international law and going against United Nations conventions in relation to people for whom it has responsibility, as in the Palestinians, if we trade with them, then factotum, we actually support that regime. And Australia should not be supporting a a regime which is clearly... Uh, apartheid. I don't use that word lightly. It is actually a word used by many people within Israel itself to describe what they see to be um, a regime which is acting out of gross self-interest in trying to develop its spread or its, its, its occupation of land and its exclusion of others from that land, which is apartheid. And we also have argued that the trade to trade deal, if there is such a thing, uh, should totally exclude anything which is produced in the illegal settlements, uh, because under under international law, they should not exist on Palestinian land. And to, to if one actually has a trade deal which encourages or builds 
the economy of the settlements, it actually is working against the economy of the Palestinians. And again, we've argued that that um, any trade deal, if one should occur, should exclude products from the settlements. Thirdly, or fourthly, whatever I'm up to, um, we have argued that, that any trade deal should exclude military equipment or, or military technology or anything to do with armaments. And unfortunately, much trade with Israel does relate to armaments, and those armaments are produced, experimented with, used against the Palestinian people. So we would argue that um, we are arguing that uh, that should be excluded. It's an extensive submission to DFAT, 31 pages. A lot of work's gone into it. It is. A lot of work has gone into it, and um, with um, deference to DFAT, they've asked us to put forward a a submission, which is great, because APAN is recognised as the lead advocacy group for Palestine in Australia, and so we are very grateful and um, pleased that DFAT appears to be wanting both sides of the story before they come to a decision about a trade agreement with Israel. Is there any timeline for a decision? I'm sure there is. Um, I'm afraid, Jan, off the top of my head, I don't know what it is. We had to have our submission in, I think now it's almost up. So um, uh, I would imagine now um, DFAT will go, will take these submissions on board. Uh, I'm sure there's... um, a strong submission in the other direction from the Zionist Federation of Australia, which is quite understandable. So we'll wait and see. Have you included the Human Rights Watch report in your submission? Uh, that came out really just at the very tail end of the time scale we had for a submission, but we have included a reference to it, yes. Thank you, George, once again. You're very welcome, Jan. And George Browning is president of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network and a former Anglican Bishop of Canberra-Goulburn. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Now here's something different. The Heatherdale Bowls Club in Mitcham is offering tuition with equipment supplied for singles, couples and all family members to learn the game. You can play whether you are 9 or 90. It's fun and it's free. They are located in Heatherdale Road, Mitcham, just up from the Manhattan Hotel in a picturesque parkland area. Their website is hrbc.org.au or just ring Elise on 0409 258 645. That's 0409-258-645. A 3CR supporter. Have you ever had a diagnosis of breast cancer or a gynecological cancer? Would you like to support other women as they go through their own cancer experience? Counterpart is a community-based service located in Melbourne. They support women right across Victoria who have been diagnosed with breast or a gynecological cancer. Counterpart peer support volunteers have all had their own cancer experience. They provide a listening ear and emotional and practical support to other women affected by cancer. 
As a peer support volunteer, you'll receive six weeks training one day a week. The 2021 volunteer intake will begin training in August. Applications close on June 7. To apply or find out more, visit counterpart.org.au forward slash volunteer or call our resource centre on 1300 781 500. Counterpart, women supporting women with cancer. A 3CR supporter. Next Sunday, a rally will be held to commemorate the ongoing Tamil genocide in Sri Lanka. The day is the anniversary of the Malivakal killing fields during the Civil War in 2009, when an estimated 100,000 were slaughtered. I spoke yesterday with one of the organisers of the day, Marathon, to point out that this day was perhaps the tragedy that ended Tamil hopes for self-determination in Sri Lanka at that time. Marathon, we're commemorating one day, May 16, 2009, and although it was a significant day in the struggle for self-determination for the Tamils in Sri Lanka, it was not an isolated incident in a long struggle. Well, yeah, uh, during the, uh, the National Liberation Struggle, which happened, um, started around, uh, in earnest around uh, the 1980s, yeah, it went on until uh, 2009. And in the final months of the war, the Sri Lankan uh, military was pressing the, the remainder of um, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam uh, into uh, different pockets. There were a lot of civilians around at that time. So the government said that there would be certain sections of those areas in which there uh, would be, they called them no-fire zones. So, you know, uh, usually in uh, war, if you're adhering to um, UN convention, uh, both sides are obliged to have no-fire zones or have zones in which civilians can enter uh, freely and uh, be safe from any conflict. However, that wasn't the case. The government actually used these no-fire zones to kettle civilians where there were hospitals and uh, women and children and injured people, and they would just bomb them relentlessly. They would do um, secondary bombing. So after they did the first case, um, you know, the people that would go try and help all the injured were uh, bombed again. Um, and this happened um, through multiple zones, and they got smaller and smaller. And that's how we ended up getting to, um, as the UN puts it, with the uh, they underestimate around 100, at least 100,000 Tamils were killed uh, during the final months of the war. Has there ever been an inquiry or condemnation of the Sri Lankan government for what you've just described? Um, are you asking by the Australian government or no, worldwide? Worldwide. Well, it has been recognised by different places. The UN has done uh, multiple reports identify, like uh, clearly demonstrating investigations uh, into the final acts of the war as well as war crimes that were committed throughout. They've had yeah, special conventions uh, convened and multiple reports. It's kind of mind-boggling how many there have been, but then the uh, actual actions it takes to um, take steps toward justice or even some semblance of reconciliation is um, uh, minimal at best. And even until today, the Tamil people, even the Muslim people, are suffering in Sri Lanka. Yeah. One of the clearest examples is how COVID has affected uh, those communities. 
in particular, um, despite health officials saying that there's no basis for this, Muslims were forced to cremate their dead against their um, religious practices, which is obviously a, a terrible blow to uh, their autonomy is just uh, even in death. Like, however, the you know they weren't burning bodies of other communities in Sri Lanka. You know, it was obviously a targeted thing that they did against the Muslim population. And then they and then afterwards, what they did was then they did designate a section of Sri Lanka to be uh, used for uh, an island to be used for um, burials for the Muslim dead. However, that was a majority uh, Tamil area that's popular, currently populated, and so that's a, another ploy in order to kind of divide the Tamil and Muslim populations by taking over land grabs, but um, yeah, not securing any uh, uh, burial sites that um, the government can do generally. And what is known about the situation for the Tamils in the north and the northeast? Well, it's uh, hyper-militarised. Um, they're under military occupation and they have been since 2009. They're of, uh, I'm, wa- I'm wary to make like a, to say that the, it's, it's very similar to uh, a number of things, but uh, if anybody is aware of uh, what's going on in Palestine, there are a lot of similarities uh, regarding how uh, occupied uh, all the civilian areas are. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a great way to live. People are constantly under surveillance by um, police and uh, the army. And yeah, the conditions are really, really poor. The north and the east are not supported um, uh, very well economically. People's lands are being uh, constantly taken away. So their autonomy to be able to farm and fish and make their own living and support their own communities is being further diminished. And so they're having to work in the cities where the majority Sinhalese government controls a lot of these things and um, yeah, doesn't employ very many Tamil people at all. Yeah, so economically and uh, physically and mental well-being, um, yeah, Tamils aren't doing very well at all. Would you say that the Australian government has done little in supporting the Tamils here in Australia, especially when you think of the family on Christmas Island? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I don't think they've done much at all. I think that um, if they showed any... Um, any positivity towards Tamils, it would just kind of further indicate the hypocrisy of um, their history uh, of mistreatment, uh, of mistreating Tamils, whether it's the cruel immigration policy, how they've turned back boats, or even their complicity in the genocide by supplying arms and training uh, during that war period and, and afterward, which is um, you know, that training and uh, most recently the uh, aerial drones that were supplied uh, by the AFP to the um, Sri Lankan police. That connection is just, uh, it obviously shows that they're continuing to give arms and uh, it's, you know, widely reported all over the world that the Sri Lankan police is targeting Tamils. So it seems uh, nonsensical that, uh, you know, the ASIO and the AFP don't know what these things will be used for. Is there any way that Tamils here in Australia can send aid through to the Tamils in the north? Yeah, there are certain organisations. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I can name any at the moment. But uh, for me, I guess, like, the clearest thing that um, Australians can do is to educate themselves about the situation and uh, join the protests and learn more about how you can actually take some actions that will actually make some change. You know, uh, Tamil Refugee Council is uh, always open to new members or um, supporting anybody through information if you want to message us on Facebook and ask for information about things, we'd be glad to help you. And just like with all movements, we need to collectivise and have 
uh, strong list of demands and have some very clear ways of um, trying to pressure the Australian government um, in order to make the changes which will hopefully lead on and uh, make things better for people in the homeland. Now, the rally is on the 16th of May at the State Library. What will people learn if they attend that? If people attend that, um, I think they'd get uh, a really good primer on the situation, how colonialism has led to the terrible mistreatment of Tamils on the island for the past like 300 years uh, up until now. They'll know the current state of affairs. They'll understand what the Tamils in the homeland, what, what their demands are. Yeah, and what we can do is uh, achieve a, a peaceful outcome for Tamils. What time does the rally begin? starts at 2pm and uh, if there's also any uh, Sydney viewers, there's also going to be one in, town, in Sydney Town Hall on the same day at 2pm as well, on Sunday the 16th. Can you give those contact web pages or Facebook pages again for people who need and want to find out more? Sure. So uh, on Facebook, if you look up Tamil Genocide Day Rally, you can look up Tamil Genocide Rally uh, Melbourne and Sydney and then you'll be able to find it very easily on Facebook. And for knowledge of more knowledge of the situation, can you find that on that Facebook page as well? Yeah, we've got some information there, and you can also go to the Tamil Refugee website, Tamil Refugee Council website. Thank you very much. Thanks for the time. I've been speaking with Arathon from the Tamil Refugee Council about the rally next Sunday at the State Library here in Victoria. The Time for the beginning is 2pm and it commemorates the ongoing Tamil genocide in Sri Lanka. Street CR Community Radio, 855am. to add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of community-powered radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence. Introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place in stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. 
the first meeting of the states' parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons will be held between the 12th and 14th of January next year in Vienna. Tillman Ruff, AO, is co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear Weapons, the organisation which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985, and the founding international and Australian chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, which was awarded the 2017 Nuclear Peace Prize, the first to an entity based in Australia. When I caught up with Tillman, he explained that with the the world's situation as it is, the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty has never been more urgent. But I asked him first about the progress to realise that ban. What we've achieved so far is really reframing the discussion about nuclear weapons from being totally in the shop and controlled by the nuclear-armed states that have clearly invested enormously in maintaining, modernising, deploying, threatening to use these weapons as some unique right, and shifting that away from a debate on their terms, which is very much about sort of myth and magic and abstract language that these are somehow instruments of security or even normal weapons that can be used for you know legitimate military purposes consistent with international law, to really the reality of what the weapons do if they're used at all and the absolutely unacceptable catastrophic consequences that make them by far the worst weapon of mass destruction, the worst weapon that's ever been invented, you know, the most acute existential threat that humanity and the world face. And really putting that reality of what the weapons do front and centre. So this was part of a humanitarian initiative that's been called over the last um, dozen years or so that's involved governments, Red Cross and other international organisations, ICANN and other civil society forces, to work essentially with the governments, most of the world's governments that are fed up with the failure of disarmament, with the nuclear armed states for decade upon decade making promises to disarm and not doing anything serious about it, and saying we're going to do what we can do. We obviously can't eliminate weapons that we don't own, that we can change the game, we can put you on notice, we can put you under much more pressure to live up to your obligations and expose your hypocrisy by banning the weapons, as we've done with every other indiscriminate, inhumane, unacceptable weapon that's been controlled, that's in the process of being controlled and or eliminated. So biological and chemical weapons, cost emissions, landmines, blinding laser weapons. Every weapon that's been controlled has one of the as one of the first steps in that process been establishing clearly that these weapons are beyond the pale, they're unacceptable, nobody should have them and we need to work to get rid of them. That's been absolutely fundamental. So essentially what we've been been able to achieve is apply those lessons to nuclear weapons, the worst of all, and achieve this um, important treaty that for the first time provides in international law, in an international treaty that's not going away, the clear benchmark that nuclear weapons are unacceptable and need to be eliminated and also provide an actual framework and the only agreed international framework that exists at present to actually finish that job to get rid of the weapons. So 
in a sense, it's hopefully you know the beginning of the end. It's certainly not the end. There's a long way to go, but it is you know really the only bright spot in an otherwise pretty bleak landscape of increasing nuclear threat and nuclear weapons development. How many countries have ratified so far? So at the moment, there's 86 signatures and 54 ratifications. So the process is that you can either do it in one step, what's called accession to the treaty, or more typically what countries do is signal their intent to join this treaty by signing it, and then they're not supposed to do anything that would be contrary to the treaty's purpose while they're getting their ducks in a row, all of their usually constitutionally mandated legislative political processes in place to to get their domestic legal situation and policy situation completely consistent with their treaty obligations. And then when they ratify, they say, yep, we've finished that process. We're now ready to be legally bound by this treaty. So that's why it's usually a two-step process, and that's why it takes a bit of time. But the treaty is continuing to accrue signatures and ratifications steadily. We expect that there will be considerably more by the time the first meeting of the state parties happens um, in January next year. You know, every country that joins this treaty adds to its its moral, its legal and political force. I'd imagine that the nuclear states and their mates have been fighting back. Is that true? Yes, they have. It's a bit of a mixed bag. They, they haven't all been as active uh, as some of them, but, but a number of them, particularly the United States, the United Kingdom, France, to some extent Russia, have been quite actively putting pressure on governments not to join this treaty as they put pressure on governments not to support the development, the negotiation, the adoption of the treaty. And indeed, the Trump administration, just a couple of months before it ended, took the extraordinary step of writing to every state that has joined or signed the treaty saying you've made a serious strategic mistake and we want you to you know, withdraw from the treaty. Quite an extraordinary um, step. But some of that pressure has been much less subtle and much more behind the scenes of putting real diplomatic aid, trade pressure on on governments that by and large are not the, the wealthiest in the world and some have, have been vulnerable to that to that pressure. But I think it's been remarkable how states have resisted that pressure generally with some really powerful examples of of courageous um, leadership, for example, Palau, the smallest, one of the smallest nations um, in the Pacific, being the first Pacific Island country to ratify the treaty, dependent on the US in many ways, sort of historically and still with strong economic and some military links. You know, that's a very bold step for them to take. And even during the pandemic, we've seen a total of 18 states either um, ratify or sign the treaty during the pandemic despite all of the other urgent issues in front of them and the difficulties of, of focusing on these bigger picture issues that are not necessarily front and centre in daily political cut and thrust. So I think that's really, really admirable. And basically that pressure hasn't worked. It's peeled off some countries that would, would have otherwise supported this treaty. It's delayed others. But this is here to stay. This treaty is not going away. And some of the countries have told us that, um, you know, once they did sign and ratify, the pressure let off. There's not much of that pressure that's in the public domain because, you know, countries don't want to stick their heads up necessarily and individual diplomats certainly often don't. 
But we know that it continues, and it no doubt applies in, in countries like Australia as well, the so-called nuclear accomplice or nuclear dependent states that don't have their own nuclear weapons but, but are part of the problem in the sense that they justify them, claim they're essential for their own security and provide assistance for their possible use. So there's about 40 of those, and some of those have, may have put pressure on on other states as well, but it, but it hasn't worked. The treaty has consistently had 130-plus nations supported every step of the way, and I think that will continue. Its adoption was with the vote of two-thirds of the world's government. So the mandate was adopted at the United Nations General Assembly by, by a vote of three to one. This has very strong support among the vast majority of the world's governments. The single thing that gives me the greatest sense of confidence and hope that this treaty matters and can make a difference is that, in fact, that continuing opposition of nuclear armed states, the fact that, that this treaty them under pressure and that they feel that and are responding to that. That's a much better situation than if they were just ignored, if they just ignored this, you know, as some more fine words that don't affect them. But that's not the case. And I think the level of strength and consistency of that opposition is a, is a real sign that this treaty matters. You don't get change on as big and entrenched an issue so beset with all sorts of toxic vested interests as you know, the world's most powerful weapons wielded by the world's most powerful states, you know, without some friction, some challenges, some tensions, some some conflict about that. So I think that's that's what we're seeing, and I'm I think it's actually encouraging that that um, opposition continues because we know that this treaty has changed the game for them, and that challenge to the, the legitimacy of nuclear weapons in any hands. Um, you know, it's not going away. It will only strengthen. You've got six or seven months before their first meeting. What would be your foci? And also, you must be working with some special, pretty special people. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that sustains and nurtures and encourages you, you know, in taking on as big a challenge as, as nuclear weapons or climate disruption or any other big thing that really matters you know, is, is the wonderful people that, that you do it with. And, and nobody does this work on their own. It really needs organised and coordinated efforts with lots of different skills and perspectives and contributions from from thousands and millions of people around the world. One of the beauties of this, um, the process of getting this treaty is, is that it not only changed the game in terms of taking the lead away from the nuclear armed states and really saying, you know, this issue, your weapons threaten us all. You know, we've got a stake in this. As everybody's got a stake in this. Everybody's threatened by these weapons. Everybody has a, a political, legal and moral responsibility to act, and we're going we're gonna to start discharging that responsibility more actively. So, in a sense, bringing global democracy and humanity to, to nuclear disarmament, which has always has always been this, you know, little plaything, you know, controlled by the by the big states, and they they don't like that. But the other thing, apart from that sort of fundamental challenge to business as usual and and the power of vested interests, has been the the really wonderful collaboration that through this process, governments that really understand and appreciate they, that they can be so much more effective if they work with civil society effectively. 
civil society organizations all around the world, particularly the survivors um, of nuclear use in Japan and of nuclear testing around the world, including in Australia. Scientific experts, academic experts, legal experts, the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, partners in the United Nations, all of the other United Nations and international organizations. And I guess ICANN's been the, you know, one of the most visible expressions of that, this sort of broad civil society coalition that became the the main coordinating vehicle for the collaborative effort with governments. That was a very powerful partnership. And, you know, if you're taking on such powerful forces, you need, you know, as many allies and as much coordinated cooperation as you can get. And I think there's already very clear evidence that that the process of, since the treaty was adopted in 2017, of working to build support for the treaty, helping to implement it um, in countries that are supportive, promoting the treaty, preparing for this first meeting of states parties coming up, overcoming the misinformation and, and uh, of the treaty that's being constantly spread, that this continues as very much a collaborative effort involving those players. And we're seeing that, that play out as well in the, in the preparations and, and the discussions, the consultations around the first meeting of states parties. So I think that's been one of the, the wonderful aspects of this process. That really hasn't happened in nuclear disarmament to this extent, certainly not in the last half a century. What do you envisage for those two days or three days in Vienna? in January? There's a formal requirement of, for the meeting of states parties and that it's, it has to happen within a year of the entry into force of the treaty. So it's, it's supposed to happen before the, the 22nd of, of January was, was when the treaty, this year was when the treaty entered into force. So, so that's when the meeting is supposed to happen by next year. And it's scheduled for the 12th to the 14th of, of January, of course, with many other UN meetings having been deferred or delayed, especially the five-yearly review conference of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And with the pandemic still raging around the world, there's, you know, there's always still some uncertainty about those plans and about how the meeting pans out. But the hope is very much that it will be, uh, have a face-to-face -face element to it. My own view is that it will probably, probably should be hybrid online and in person. And we actually think that one of the the best ways of making this more participatory and more open and transparent in the spirit of of the negotiations um, that got us the treaty would be to to actually live stream the whole the whole thing. So there's a few formal things they have to do uh, that are defined in the treaty. They have to set the rules of procedure for the meetings. Uh, they have to decide a couple of specific things like the timelines for states with nuclear weapons that join the treaty. What are the timeframes around the elimination of, of their weapons, um, preparing for, for that hopeful eventuality? There's a few things they, they have to do. Some of that process obviously is, is rather formal, but it's certainly written into the treaty that every state will be invited to the meeting of, of states parties and that civil society and experts and, and non-government organisations will be invited as well as observers. In addition to that, we're hopeful that there will be opportunities around the meeting, inside events, um, perhaps in a civil society forum that, that ICANN might organise. Those plans are really in development now. Ways of engaging 
with the diplomats that are there communicating new information about nuclear weapons consequences and risks, ideas for possible paths forward, ways to use the treaty, and also engaging with the hopefully significant number of states who haven't yet joined the treaty, but who we're hopeful will participate as observers. And I think because this is a United Nations treaty, every government in the world, through its mission in New York, in the last week or two, we'll have gotten an invitation from the United Nations Secretary General to participate in this meeting. For the Australian government, for others that, that haven't yet supported the treaty, if you're serious about nuclear disarmament at all, you really need to be in the room when the first new multilateral treaty addressing nuclear weapons and the first treaty to actually prohibit them is being discussed. You know, you can't throw mud from the outside. If you're serious you'll be in the room and engage constructively uh, with the treaty and with the evidence and the concerns that motivated it. There's a number of governments that haven't joined the treaty that have already said they're coming. Sweden and Switzerland, uh, we understand a number of particularly European nations, Finland and Germany, this is under active consideration at the moment. Uh, the Australian government in some media coverage um, in the last week has indicated they haven't yet made a decision whether to participate. They certainly, we believe they should. We believe every government should participate. Really, the, the, hopefully the discussions will in Vienna around the conference will involve everything from updating the scientific evidence, new knowledge about what nuclear weapons do, about the impossibility of any effective response to their use, about the profound and growing dangers of their use, the multiple ways that those risks are increasing, express concern about the modernisation programs uh, that we're seeing, the continued massive and growing investments uh, and proliferation of nuclear weapons, as well as ways that countries to fulfil their obligations under the treaty to, to start talking about how they fulfil their obligations to assist the victims of nuclear use and testing, what kind of evidence, what kind of processes can be put in place to implement those obligations, and also putting in place some of the, the nuts and bolts of the machinery, the processes, the organisation that will underpin the effective work of the treaty, the independent international authority that will monitor uh, and verify nuclear disarmament under the treaty, some work on establishing who that body will be, how it will work, will no doubt begin. It's a, it's a really important occasion to, I think, to demonstrate that this treaty is here to stay, that it's a serious contribution to the urgent need to get rid of nuclear weapons and that there's practical work to be done to implement and promote it. Finally, Tillman, is there any negotiations or talks between ICANN and other groups with the Australian government? Yes, there are certainly ongoing communications um, with the Australian government and the Australian parliament, with members of all across the political board. I have to say the government has been not particularly easy or welcoming to engage with on this issue. They have been among the most active governments opposing the treaty sought to undermine the processes that led to it for the first time ever boycotted a multilateral and international disarmament negotiation when they stayed away from the negotiations on this treaty. And they were one of the first governments, Julie Bishop as foreign minister, the first governments you know, within weeks of the treaty's adoption to say that um, Australia wouldn't be signing it. 
an extraordinary step, really. If you're serious about disarmament, at some stage you're going to have to ban the weapons. To rule out Australia signing is really a, a signal of, of, of pretty bad faith. Unfortunately, those policies haven't changed. The Department of Foreign Affairs website has just a paragraph about the treaty. It's entirely dismissive. It's full of misinformation, absolutely misinformation that ICANN has, has put on the public record uh, recently, a document that point by point counters um, the continuing misinformation that, uh, about this treaty. And in fact, in our regular requests to meet with all federal parliamentarians, it's really difficult to get in the door for coalition members. You know, we put in hundreds of requests for meetings follow them up and one or two or three people agree to meet with us. So it's not for want of trying. But this is a you know a broad humanitarian issue that needs to be way above party politics. So there are 88 uh, members of the current federal parliament that have signed ICANN's parliamentary pledge that commits them publicly to support the treaty and to work for Australia joining it. They come from every single political party with the exception of, I think, One Nation. But Labor, Greens, Centre Alliance, um, a number of independents, Liberal, National, across the board. And, of course, at the end of March, happily the Labor Party National Policy Platform committing the alternative party of government to sign and ratify the treaty when next in government was was reaffirmed without any controversy. You know, we, we continue to to find that in opinion polls that have been done on four occasions now by us and by Greenpeace so in recent years, the level of support of the Australian public for this treaty and for Australia joining it as the best way to advance the world free of nuclear weapons that we all desperately want and need remains high and continues between 70 and 80% of the population uh, want that to happen. And a very small proportion, significantly under 10%, are actually opposed to the treaty. This clearly has wide support and it's across party support, men and women, city, country, all around Australia. Yes, we do make continuing efforts to engage with the governments, but um, we certainly don't want to don't want to stop at that. It's the alternative governments, the governments of the future, the parliamentarians that represent that should be representing us, and a growing number of cities as well, local councils that support this treaty that raise the profile of this issue and you know if leadership is lacking at the top well then it needs to come from elsewhere and 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 pressure force appropriate action you know the first responsibility of every level of government whether it's um, local government state government or national government is to protect its citizens cities are the targets the primary targets of nuclear weapons and just in the last couple of weeks, we've had the first city in Queensland, Mount Isa, joined the ICANN Cities Appeal and Shoalhaven in New South Wales as well. So the total number is now at 35, including um, Hobart, Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle, lots of cities, urban and rural, around this wide brown land. Thank you so much, Tillman, again. Thanks, Jan. Associate Professor Tillman Ruff. 3CR Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. 
Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafiya to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Let's welcome once again to Dr. Randy Irwin the editor of the Western Sahara e-Bulletin, to talk about issues covered in the latest bulletin. First, Randy, the hunger strike of one of those convicted after the dismantling of the Gadimizik protest camp. The hunger strike began in mid-January by Mohammed Lemon Hadi. What was the result? The push for that hunger strike was about the violations around solitary confinement and the injustices that have been faced by Sahrawi prisoners in particular who have been cut off from their families and been imprisoned for significantly long periods of time. And part of the aim of the hunger strike was to raise awareness of those violations of human rights and to draw international attention to the plight of Sahrawi prisoners. And that has been relatively successful in bringing some awareness back to that issue and to push for some conciliations from Morocco. Do you know what those concessions are? I believe that the families have recently heard from their imprisoned loved ones. Their calls have not been very long. But my understanding is that families have been able to get in touch with those who have been imprisoned. Now, the prisoners are still not doing well. Their health is still in danger, as Amnesty International has sought to emphasize. But I believe my understanding is that families have been able to get in contact with those who have been imprisoned. Do you know how many are still in prison and how long their sentences are? I don't know the total number of Sahrawi prisoners that remain um, imprisoned by Morocco. Some of them are serving quite long sentences. In this instance, Mohamed Lamin Hadi, who is currently undergoing the hunger strike, he was initially sentenced to 25 years in prison, 
Um, so he does have quite a long sentence, and that sentence was from 2013. So these are these are quite extended sentences that we're talking about here. Surely he's not still on hunger strike. He has been receiving fluids intravenously from the Moroccan prison. They've been force feeding him, is my understanding, according to Amnesty. Isn't force feeding illegal under international law? That's correct, and that's part of the issue that Amnesty has has raised in their recent letter to the head of the government in Morocco. Um, they've tried to raise awareness with the around the point that it is illegal to force feed, but yes, and this we received some of this information from the phone call that. Mohammed Lamin Hadi had with his family back in March. He must be in a pretty bad way now. Yes, I think that there are still significant concerns around the, his health and what is, lies ahead for him in the future. I don't think that he has, you know, he's not in a position to have made a full recovery, and uh, I think he, we will have to pay close attention to what happens with his condition. Yes continue to advocate for him. Is he in a prison in Morocco or in the occupied territories? He is in prison in Rabat, and that has been one of the significant concerns from Amnesty, is that under uh, UN rules for the treatment of prisoners, prisoners should be kept in prisons close to their home. Obviously, Rabat is quite far away from Western Sahara, and from Mohammed Lamin Hadi's home and his family. So Amnesty International has called for him and the other prisoners who were detained under following Gudemi Zik to be transferred to Al Ayun so that they might be closer to their families. Is it likely that family members have never been able to visit them? Uh, yes, I believe that that is the case. His family has been banned or prevented from visiting him at least twice this year already. Now, we're talking about human rights. The UN meeting on the Minerso mandate has just passed or is, is happening at the moment. That's April. Is there any message from that yet? Right now, there have been a couple of different changes at the United Nations. And... For the past couple of years under the Trump administration, the UN Minerso mandate has been reduced from 12 months to six months. And so that meant that the mandate was being reviewed in April and October every year. However, leading up to Trump's announcement about the recognition of Western Sahara as Moroccan in December, he and his State Department or his representative to the Security Council pushed for a change in those terms. So what we're seeing right now is actually that the United Nations mandate for the Minerso mission has been extended back out to 12 months. So what, what we're seeing this, this month right now is a set of closed-door meetings, and we'll have an update, but the, the mandate itself won't actually be renewed again until October. So this is going to be the six-month update where we, where we hear from um, a number of those officials associated with the mission. But the mandate itself 
we won't see any changes to that again until October. And this is only one, isn't it, of the UN missions around the world where human rights is not part of that mission? That's correct, yes. And that has been one of the central concerns that uh, human rights advocates around the world and Saharis have sought to change for many, many years. All they've asked for, and this should be a relatively straightforward ask, is that that there's a human rights mandate added to the MINURSO mandate. Because without that mandate, UN officials who are in the um, Moroccan-controlled portion of Western Sahara and in the portion of Western Sahara that Saharis control cannot report back on human rights violations as they see them. And being able to report on those human rights violations gives us a significant amount of transparency. So without that mandate, it is very difficult for us around the world to know what's actually happening in Western Sahara. And this is part of, this is, this is one of the most important components of the issue. Without the ability to know what's happening to Saharis living in Western Sahara, it is really difficult to know how we can support Saharis. It's really difficult to know the pressures that Saharis living under Moroccan control are facing. And this is, you know, this all comes back to the hunger strike. Without real journalism coming out of Western Sahara and without a human rights mandate, it is very difficult to know what's going on. It is very difficult to keep Western Sahara at the front of people's minds and to update them with real and credible information. I think credibility is one of the things that we we lose out on when we don't have something like a human rights mandate. And you would think that Morocco would want something like a human rights mandate because, you know, we hear a lot of concern around these ideas of fake news. So we would think that having a UN mandate to observe human rights, and again, this observation doesn't give the United Nations the right to act in these instances, but simply to report. And this is really what the Harveys have been pushing for, the ability to have the United Nations report on what they're observing on the ground. Why was it deleted in the first place? It actually never existed in the first place. But why? I think that that's a good question. And there's there's been a lot of back and forth and a lot of speculation on why that's been the case. One of the things that we do know is that a couple of years back, the United States did add a human rights mandate into the Minerva mission, and then it was later taken out after it went through an editorial process. Then a relatively accepted belief that France was behind the deletion of that mandate. And again, you know, these are all diplomatic processes. I think we talk about the UN mission and we talk about the mandate as being sort of apolitical. It's very frequently pitched as being apolitical. And what we see is that actually there's a lot of diplomatic tensions and a lot of diplomatic negotiations that happen behind the scenes that, you know, you and I aren't privy to. So there was a, there was a lot presumed around France's support, ongoing support for Morocco, that um, led to the deletion of the human rights mandate. So what we need to see is a real push to challenge 
and get France to come to the table on this human rights mandate. So France is the blocker, is it? That's what we've presumed. That's what the that's what we've been told, and it seems to be the case as the P5, which are the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, who all have a veto power. Those are the five that we really want to watch for. Those are the five that really determine the scope and shape of these sorts of mandates. And we know that Russia has a history of supporting Sahariv and has a long history of backing what might be in this context more progressive mandates in Western Sahara. And France has been far more conservative in what it is willing to support for inclusion. And because we know that the United States added that human rights clause, you know, we're only looking at a few actors who could possibly be behind the push to remove it. Can you explain why France has taken this position? France has sought to maintain a strong diplomatic relationship with Morocco, and there are a couple of different things that are at play. The relationship between France and Morocco, particularly the kingdom, has, particularly with the king himself, has been a strong one over the years. I think one of the things that is important to remember is that Morocco has two Spanish enclaves at the northern portion of the territory. And those two enclaves, Ceuta and Melilla, are actually part of the European Union's borders. And so Frequently, we think of Morocco as being separate from Europe. However, it does have the European Union's borders within its territory. It's not about crossing the Mediterranean, but that border exists within Morocco itself, and Morocco becomes responsible for policing that border to an extent. We have to think about some of the border politics here, but also France and other European Union countries do have trade deals with Morocco for resources that come from Western Sahara. We see this quite clearly with the fisheries agreements that has been the subject of European Union um, court cases. And that resources, the ones that be featured here in Australia were the phosphate, well, hopefully we've just about got all of them, the companies out now from bringing it to Australia. But New Zealand companies are hanging on there they actually went to the High Court in New Zealand about this issue. Can you explain how that happened? That's right. The Polisario, which is the uh, political representative of the Sahari people, and that's recognised by the United Nations, they have a representative for Australia and New Zealand. And the representative for the Polisario and the Sahari people took a court case to New Zealand challenging the inclusion of New Zealand phosphate as a violation of the Superfund's, the, super, the pension Superfund's ethical obligations. The basis of that was that the phosphate comes from Western Sahara and that the phosphate coming from Western Sahara posed an investment risk to the pension fund itself because it, those companies would be targeted for um, illegally taking phosphate out of Western Sahara, which could pose reputational risk. The court case went ahead in New Zealand, and this was we've seen some of these strategies work in relationship to the Norwegian pension fund, which has dropped 
companies that import phosphate or extract phosphate from Western Sahara. So this is a strategy that has worked to an extent in the past. However, the New Zealand case found that while there were some concerns around the importation of that phosphate, that those risks didn't come from managerial problems. And so therefore they dismissed the case, but they didn't say that that made the phosphate importation legal or that it was ethical, but that the risk itself that was posed to the pension fund did not come from an issue of management. And so therefore it couldn't further adjudicate the decision. So where does it stand now? The court has issued its determination, and then I think what we will do now is we will sort of wait and see if there's an appeal. And I believe that there are a number of New Zealand protesters who have continued to push quite hard on the companies engaging in phosphate from Western Sahara in order to show them that this is not a viable long-term solution that if they need phosphate, they need to get their phosphate ethically. This has been rather effective in the past in a range of places. And so New Zealand um, activists have also sought to link up with Saharwis to really show that Saharwis don't consent to the um, extraction of phosphate from Western Sahara, which is a real key to understanding the legal framework of phosphate extraction in Western Sahara. Because what we do know from international law is that, and from different legal opinions that have been authored by the United Nations, is that the Haris must consent to resource extraction in Western Sahara and that they must benefit from it. Activists in New Zealand and Sahari protesters have really sought to show that they don't consent to this resource extraction and they certainly don't benefit from it. And so I think what we'll see in the you know, coming months is increasing push on these companies to really drive this point home and say, look, it's not worth it. You can buy your phosphate from other places. Don't buy your phosphate from Western Sahara. Don't fund the Moroccan government's presence in the territory. And the situation here in Australia, there is still one company who haven't quite said they won't bring it in the future. They haven't quite said that they won't bring it in the future, but I also, companies in general tend not to like to make those sorts of announcements, but I would, I think I would be very surprised to see if they did begin importing it again. What we've seen from companies like Cosmos in the United States when they left Western Sahara, they did so quietly and we've not seen them return. So my hope is that Companies have sort of seen the error of their ways. They've heard from Saharawis directly. I think, you know, Saharawis have done a very, very good job of vocalizing their opinions on resource extraction in Western Sahara. And I think those have been heard by companies. And I would be very surprised to see phosphate from Western Sahara come to Australia again, unless it was sold by Saharawis themselves. Finally, Randy... COVID-19 in the occupied territories, in the camps in Algeria, in the liberated area. What's the story in this time of the year when some countries in the world are going way backwards? 
what we've seen is that there's been a significant outbreak in COVID-19 in Lyon. Um, there's been some concern around the ways the, the spread of COVID in the Moroccan control areas of Western Sahara. My understanding is that there has been an uptick of COVID cases in the camps as well. I did see a photograph of some donated vaccines coming in. So I'm optimistic that there will be a rollout of COVID-19 vaccines in the Sahara refugee camps via the Polisario. So I'm hoping that what we see is that the outbreak in the camps is managed swiftly and quickly and that with the help of vaccines, Saharis will be protected. But we know that it will be a long road to have those vaccines completely rolled out throughout the Sahari community. Yes, I just think we will just have to continue to wait, see as COVID continues to run through both portions of Western Sahara and the refugee camps. Thank you so much, Jen. It was great to talk. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. We know about the charge of Lay's Majesty in Thailand, meaning to do wrong to the royal family, is a criminal offence which can carry a jail sentence of up to 15 years. But were you aware that there could be a form of Lay's Majesty in Malaysia? Well, a Kuala Lumpur activist and artist now knows if he didn't before, Rami Raza Zara is threatened with sedition for mocking the Malaysian Queen. I spoke with Australian Malaysian Lee Tan. Lee, how strong is the law against offending the royal family in Malaysia? And indeed, how powerful is the royal family in Malaysia? Not really, but in Malaysia, it is an unspoken kind of you know, law understanding of not criticizing uh, the, the monarchy. It's a very strange situation. There isn't a law, and I don't think anyone's been charged in court, but certainly people have been pulled out, uh, pulled out by the police for having insulted the king or the queen or whatever, but it's never actually gone to the court, which is very interesting. Just stay with that for a minute longer. What power do the royal family have in Malaysia? They're constitutional monarchy. By right, they do not take part in uh, the political affairs of the country, but because of Well, I guess the the instability of political power, of the the elected political party, the king has actually been called upon by various party leaders to make the final decision, which, you know, he, he has under the constitution, like, for example, to declare government, uh, and more recently, to declare a state of emergency, supposedly uh, in the name of uh, trying to control the community um, transmission form of COVID-19. 
the power is limited, but it is not insignificant. And it, in the past, it hasn't been used as commonly as in recent years, mainly because of the instability within the political parties that are all scrambling uh, to gain power. Yeah, and, they, and it's all done outside of the electoral process, which is a problem when it comes to democratic governance for Malaysia. Also, we're talking about sedition, and I haven't heard that word spoken about Malaysia for quite a while. Is that correct? In the past, particularly during Mahathir's uh, reign in uh, the 90s, even in the 80s, I think uh, it has been used a lot. And then uh, Najib Raza, the Prime Minister, famously or infamously linked to the one MDB corruption scandal, sedition has been used a lot by first dissent. And then, you know, the election of the supposedly more progressive Pakatan Harapan or the Coalition of Hope, yeah, many of those re- repressive law. Um, and legislation had been kind of deep for a brief two-year period when they in power, they were in power. But since this is a cool government formed through uh, elected MPs, jumping party, and forming new alliance, it has no consideration for law and order in well for for the law anyway because it is kind of a, a illegitimate government, if you want to put it that way. And it is done with the blessing of the, uh, the king as well. Tell us about the artist mm. and the charge against him. Now, his name is Fami Riza Kari, uh, uh, Zareen. He is not a stranger when it comes to challenging the establishment. First came into public uh, notice back in the former Prime Minister Najib Razak's era where he painted a caricature photo of Najib and splashing it everywhere. He's very popular amongst the public, especially younger uh, Malaysians. Yeah, for that he was charged on, on seditious, um, uh, under the sedition law for insulting the Prime Minister. And now, recently, he's, of course, you know, taken, taken on upon the Queen, basically tweeting about the Queen, boasting about her early vaccination done in the United Emirates of uh, Arabs, or UAE, uh, or Arabs Emirates. <laughs> yeah, the Queen and the king was invited, were invited by uh, the king of um, UAE for a visit. Among other things, they were meant to be going there to secure some vaccine, but at inflated price. So anyway, they were given some doses of vaccines, and members of the royal family and uh, uh, well-connected people were given the jab earlier than other Malaysians, including those at the front line who are most at risk. And instead of um, 
you know, moving on to make sure that vaccines are made available to most who are most vulnerable and at risk. The Queen, I think, had a photo of herself with the vaccine and uh, asking her follower, followers whether they were jealous of her, the fact that she had her vaccine first. And of course, you know, that's rather inappropriate, given that the so-called the hierarchy, the whole, the whole um, you know, power of the monarchy and everything is being questioned and even rejected um, these days. Uh, and of course, it became viral very quickly. And Sami, uh, of course, would not miss such an opportunity. Being a, um, uh, well, in the, in the sense, you know, a, a cartoonist, of course, you know, he um, reacted by um, making a mockery out of it. And for that, he got pulled up by the police. He did get uh, released a day after. Is he still charged with sedition? He probably is still charged. Whether or not he goes to court, that's another matter, depending on who is in government, whether or not the government wanted to attract more attention to a rather unpopular issue. That remains to be seen. Sometimes it's done to distract people from the, the real issues, a bit like Morrison in Australia, you know, um, taking on China to try and distract people from all the blunders, scandals and whatever that his political party has been uh, associated with. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> politics is a bit like that. It's very often it's a charade to try and mask other problems. And in the case of Malaysia, COVID-19 community transmission rate is on the rise by the rolling out of the vaccine. And it is not casting the, the present already unpopular government in a positive light. So this kind of distraction you know, can sometimes, in, in the eyes of those in power, be a bit of a distraction from the real issue. There's still a state of emergency in Malaysia? Yes, absolutely. There's been call for the ordinance to be rescinded. But, you know, this government's very, as I say, is very unstable. It's being challenged every month by different political parties. And it's not going to, the state of emergency has not actually helped with containing community transmission of COVID-19 in Malaysia, but it has guaranteed the Mohidin government, uh, which is a cool government, to stay in power. And that really is the, the agenda behind the state of emergency. We spoke about the Australian rare earth uh, mining company, Linus, quite often um, in this program, to our surprise, although it's not that surprising either, the Department of Environment has rejected Linus' application to build a radioactive waste dump at the headwater of um, key water catchment in the uh, Kuantan region. Taken a while, uh, Linus submitted an environmental impact assessment for public, for, for the government to consider. And as, because it's a significant project, the government under its um, EIA process uh, has to invite 
public for um, submissions. I believe over 2,000 submissions were received by the government in the middle of last week. On the website of the Department of Environment, um, it was clearly stated that the EIA had been rejected, much to our relief, but that's only temporarily, unfortunately. What do you mean by temporary? Because waste is still there. Yeah, a huge, massive amount of waste, much more than and, and much more radioactive than the uranium tailings in, in, say, for example, the Ranger Mine in Kakadu. So that's quite a serious public health problem or issue. And this waste has to go somewhere. Linus, back in 2012, had signed an undertaking to remove the waste if necessary. Basically, if there's no you know, option to store in Malaysia, it has to remove it. Linus will have to keep looking for a, a place uh, in Malaysia to store it. We think that the reason why the EIA was rejected was because the site, the land use plan for the site, is for a high-value forest conservation. And to change that, the government has to go through public consultation and other due processes to make it an industrial waste site, which is a stark conflict of uh, land use purpose for that particular site. So we now watching to see if the government would actually move to change the land use for that particular forest area. And that means that, you know, uh, um, uh, the way some proposal for that area is still possibility and very high possibility. And we, of course, unfortunately, cannot relax about it. As an environmentalist from Malaysia, where should that waste go? Well, it can't be Malaysia because it's a wet tropical country. That's high density of population as compared to Australia, a waste like that, nobody will want, which is a problem. And it's very costly to manage it safely. Miners not going to spend that money to keep it safe. And for, insofar as Malaysia is concerned, it cannot stay in Malaysia. And Linus will have to deal with it. How Linus is going to deal with it, it is its problem. You know, we never actually accepted Linus' proposal, we're not going to offer a solution for Linus. It is a problem that it has created. It has to deal with it. Fair enough. And so has the, the Australian government as well, because the Australian High Commissioner uh, and the Australian government have been actually behind it as well by supporting Linus. So where do the activists go from here? Uh, we will be monitoring yeah, what the Malaysian government will be doing and also in Australia we're watching what Linus is um, doing as well. In fact, this week so we should be sending a letter to the Australian High Commissioner for his inappropriate comments made in public several times over the years in support of Linus and at times criticising people who are opposed to the Linus project in Malaysia. You know, as you know, Jen, it's just like 
the anti-nuclear or nuclear-free campaign is a never-ending saga. Yep, and um, none of us can let our guts down, unfortunately. Thank you once again, Lee Tan. Thanks, Jen. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.